We'll pray first, and then we'll turn our attention to Psalm 22. Our God in heaven, we are grateful that you are a God that loves and redeems, but tonight we're thankful that you are also a God that sanctifies your church. So by your spirit, we ask that you would teach us, give us understanding in your word, fill our hearts with the praises of our God, and we pray that we would be transformed under your teaching and under your power and under your purposes this evening as we join our hearts together in the truths of Scripture. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> well, I trust that you grabbed a little note sheet on, as you came in. It will be a little bit helpful as we work our way through the second half of Psalm 22. You remember it was last month when we looked at the first half. This evening, we're going to take a peek at the second half and work our way down to the end. So if you will join me in God's word, I'm going to back up to verse 19 and then work our way down to verse 31. And remember, this is a messianic psalm, so we picture Christ speaking these words. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. Verse 22 is where our study will start tonight. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even those who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has performed it. If you recall in our last study, as we looked at the first half of this psalm, and you can glance back especially to verse 1, it sets kind of the tone of where this psalm of David is going. And this is where we picture David as a prophet, foretelling that which will take place in Messiah's life as he gives his life on the cross. And from that, we can see Uh, the internal anguish in these first few verses of the psalm of Messiah as he is hanging on the cross. And as Paul wrote, at that moment when he who knew no sin became sin for us. This is a personal and intimate look into the heart of Jesus Christ as he was hanging on a cross. That takes us from verse 1 all the way to verse 21. The first half is an expression of the plea of the suffering Messiah as he cries out to God in anguish. And we see in the first and second verse, that's that idea that Christ was forsaken and unheard 
by the Father because sin was laid on him and the Father turned his face away from his own Son. In verses 3 to 5 and 9 to 11, we considered that even though he was suffering in this way, his hope, his trust is in God, that God will rescue Messiah in the end, and we'll see that at the end as well. Then in verses 6 to 8 and verse 12 to 18, we see how humanity disgraced and abused the Lord, mocking the physical, the emotional abuse, the piercing of the hands and feet of Jesus by men against God's Son. And then finally in verses 19 to 21, we see the expression of the cry of Christ, the cry of Messiah, calling for the nearness and the deliverance that only God his Father can bring. And it expressed the great confidence, even in the midst of this suffering, great confidence that Jesus Christ had while he was on the cross, even though the Father had turned his face away. And I especially see that in Luke's account in chapter 23, where Jesus cried out at the very last moment, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There's a a note, a cry, a plea, but it's a note of confidence. And that brings us to the second uh, second half of this psalm of David, the first half expressing suffering, the crucifixion. But you can see in the words of the second half, clearly there's a, a note of triumph and victory. And this is where we picture the resurrection. The first part, the crucifixion. The second part, the resurrected Christ. And he's expressing triumph in this. <clears throat> so there's a sharp turnabout as Messiah praises God for the success of his salvation. So verse 22 is important here because it is quoted by the author of Hebrews. And I want you to turn to Hebrews 22, or Hebrews chapter 2 with me. Because Psalm 22, as we said before, is a picture of Messiah. And Messiah is crying out to the Father. So as David is prophetically writing this, he's writing from the viewpoint of Messiah and Messiah speaking. And we see here in Hebrews chapter 2 that the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 22. If you back up to verse 9, and we'll read down to verse 12 into that territory where the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 22. But to set the stage, verse 9, But we do not see him who is made a little lower than the angels, namely Christ, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. I love that declaration. He, Christ, is not ashamed to call them brethren. Then the quote from Psalm 22, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given to me. Now, verse 12 and 13, who is that speaking? Who is it speaking there? Jesus Christ, absolutely. And right there, the Hebrew writer is quoting from Psalm 22. So when we back up and we look at Psalm 22 and verse 22, we know at once, this again is messianic portrayal, and Christ is speaking these words through the, down to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> now in Hebrews tw- uh, chapter 2, the author is showing how much greater Jesus Christ is 
than even the angels of heaven. Remember, the angels are mere servants of God. But the portrayal here is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And in this chapter, Hebrews 2, it speaks of God crowning His Son with glory and honor, putting all things under His feet, under His sovereign rule. And therefore, men at the beginning of the chapter are, are exhorted, don't neglect so great a salvation has been brought to us by Jesus Christ. So the second chapter of Hebrews goes into further detail from that point on, on the suffering and death of Messiah as that great work of redemption whereby Jesus was crowned with glory even as he brings many sons into his glory. And what is in view here is the sacrifice of Christ on the cross as that which brings men into salvation. It is through this salvation that Jesus is not ashamed to call his brethren because he's made us like himself through the cross of his own sacrifice. Psalm 22 is then quoted to show that Jesus is the one who speaks the words of that Old Testament psalm. And in this second half of the hymn, Jesus is praising God for the triumph of the cross. So we picture Christ now resurrected, the empty tomb. He's praising God for the triumph of the sacrifice that he made that is now successful because he's risen. The anguish of the cross has paid off. And what is clearly implied from this declaration is that when Jesus speaks, beginning in verse 22 of Psalm 22, and to the end of the chapter, his resurrection has now been fulfilled. I put on your note sheet a quote from James Boyce. Follow along with me. The second half of Psalm 22 is thus a throbbing, soaring anticipation of the expanding proclamation of the gospel and of the growing, triumphant Christian church. That's why the second half of the psalm is so much different than the first half. The first half is the anguish of the soul of Messiah. Now it is bursting forth in praise because the resurrection has taken place. <clears throat> Several writers have noted that in the second half, there are three very clear sections. The first part references the Jewish community that would be the first to hear and receive the news of the gospel of the resurrection of Christ. The second part references the broadening reach of the gospel and showing the church of the redeemed, Jew and Gentile alike. And then there is a third part towards the end of uh, Psalm 22, which references the future generations who will hear the proclamation of the gospel. And we'll see these movements as we work through our study tonight. I haven't broken it up quite that way, but I, I point those, those three movements out so that as we work our way through this psalm, we can see the progression of growth that, as James Boyce said, is, is kind of the throbbing, soaring anticipation of the expansion of the gospel and the growing, triumphant Christian church. This is a, a, a note of praise and victory in the resurrection of Christ. Beginning then in verse 22 to 24, I've just noted the praising and the telling forth. This is what opens as, as you can see the, the stone of the, the tomb is rolled away. And what happens in the next few days is this exaltation of Christ, this praising of God, this telling forth of what God has accomplished through his son, Messiah. So our first section concerns the descendants of Jacob or the Jewish community because they were the first to hear and while Messiah refers to these as his brethren, they were also the ones who tormented him and nailed his feet and hands to a cross in the previous section. 
Yet here he's telling them of God's great character and his work in bringing redemption to his people through the sacrifice of his son. And Messiah calls on his brethren now, praise God, glorify God for this salvation. And in contrast to the anguish of the first half, these verses, verse 22 through verse 31, have a clear note of triumph and a call to praise God and to glorify God because Christ is risen. His gospel is fulfilled, and it is now being proclaimed. It's being told. And this is where God is praised by those people that heard the gospel first. And I want us to note the progression here. Verse 22, even down through verse 25, it notes the assembly there in verse 22, or my brethren. And you can picture Christ coming out of the tomb and giving witness to the glory of the salvation of Christ the salvation and redemption of God, first to his disciples, and then remember uh, the 500 that witnessed Christ and others to follow his resurrection. Paul wrote of this in 1 Corinthians 15 as he described the cross and the resurrection of Christ. And then he said he first told this news to his disciples. And then he told it to some 500 others. And then he named some other people that were included. So we can see here in this prophetic psalm of Messiah, the resurrected Christ has emerged. He's telling the good news to his Jewish brethren. He's praising God and calling on all who fear God to praise God as well. And this distinguishes, I believe, between the believers in Israel from the unbelievers. The God-fearing Jewish community was to glorify God and stand in awe of him because of his salvation through Messiah. And I think this is a picture of the remnant of Israel that embraced Jesus as Messiah. They first ran from him and hid when the cross was taking place. But then there's the empty tomb. His disciples are gathered around. They come to a full understanding of the gospel, and then they're rejoicing in God in what he has done. And we recall in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 how Jesus foretold, you are to take this message. It's to go to Jerusalem and Judea first and then to the uttermost parts of the world. And, and Paul wrote of this also in Romans 1 and verse 16, where he said that message was to go to the Jewish community first. <clears throat> then came Pentecost. When the Spirit of God descended upon those early believers and the resurrected Christ was proclaimed. So first we see in verse 22, my brethren, my assembly, they're called upon to praise God. And then in verse 23, all descendants of Jacob. You can see the expansion here from Pentecost on through the church's ministry. Then you move down into verse 25 into our next section and you see the greater assembly. The church expansion now including the Gentile community, and we think of the missionary journeys taking place here. Why this praise and proclamation? <clears throat> you notice verse 24, the, verse, the word for. That lets us know there's a reason for he has not despised or abhorred the afflict. God did not turn his face away from his son. He did in the moment of the cross. He forsook his son because his son was laden with our sin. But that was for a moment. And then the resurrection. Jesus cried out on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Father received that spirit. And there was this glorious exit from the tomb. And the gospel is sounding forth. So verse 24 answers why it is this praise and proclamation. Because God has not forgotten the despised one who was afflicted, who was abhorred. But when Jesus Christ cried out for help to the Father, as we see in verse 19... 
God did not hide His face from Him. God heard. He answered. And from the cross, Jesus pleaded for deliverance. And when atonement was made fully for our sins, God raises His Son, declares victory over sin, death, and judgment. In other words, salvation has now come. The gospel has been completed in the sacrifice of the Son. And if God did not ignore the plea of His Son through the afflictions that He was suffering with our sins on Him, we ask the question, how would God possibly ignore those that committed those sins who put their faith and trust in, God, in Christ? God has provided the rescue of His people through the cross and the empty tomb of His Son. God forgives, He redeems, He gives eternal life, and He is to be praised and worshipped. And those believing Jews were to stand in awe and reverence of Him and bring glory to His name. You see the tone of triumph in this, this song. It moves us to verse 25 down through verse 29. And what I've referred to as eating and worshiping, and you're going to see kind of a blending of these words and these thoughts with what we even saw this morning in Jesus as the bread of life. But here the scope of Christ's success on the cross widens as David writes of the great assembly. Now note that word assembly. It's the same word that was used back in verse 22. But now there's the word great in front of it. The assembly has grown. You see the expansion. The word is being proclaimed. And this supports the idea of the growing community of believers after the day of Pentecost. And while it is true that we are witnessing these words, the growing number of gospel believers, the church is expanding, it is still the Lord God who is the focal point of this hymn. It's in, within this larger company of believers, the Messiah is praised. Yet notice the source of the praise. The source of the praise is God himself. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard, then verse 25, from you comes my praise. You see, Messiah has made the sacrifice. But he says, from you, God, comes my praise in the great assembly. Here is the church praising God, but where are those praises flowing from? Look at the quote that I included on your note sheet from Spurgeon. The rarest harmonies of music are nothing unless they are sincerely consecrated to God by hearts sanctified by the Spirit. How true it is even in our own praise to God. Any of us can flock into the doors of the church and sing the words and carry the music along. But it's only true praise to God as those words are energized by the Spirit of God. Unbelievers can sing our songs. And even believers can sing these songs of praise that we do in our worship services. And yet their minds are distracted and completely somewhere else. Those are not words of praise that are moved by the Spirit when our hearts and minds are somewhere else. So we should, we should long for this kind of praise. As it says there in verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great assembly. Don't you want to be one of those praisers of God? Energized by the Spirit of God, joining with the others in the great assembly. This is what Messiah is speaking of through the prophet David. <clears throat> then Messiah speaks of paying his vows to the Lord in the second part of verse 25. Now some suggest that the word vow here has the idea of devotion. In other words, those praising God are giving devotion to him. Others teach that these vows 
may be connected with the offerings and sacrifices made to God when people would come under distress, pleading for God with, for help and deliverance. And God would bring that help. They would pay their vows by bringing their thank offerings to the Lord. And you see that in, in passages like Leviticus chapter 7. I did research on that. And you can see a good example of those kind of thank offerings in Levitic, Leviticus 7. But whatever the meaning of the paying of vows here, the picture here is the company of believers giving praise and worship to God for his deliverance. Now, I'm mindful of the reality that we don't just praise and worship God when we're doing music. We praise and worship God when our hearts are bound together and we're even studying the word of God and learning together and rejoicing in what we have. We're praising God and worshiping as we're talking among ourselves Two people conversing about how wonderful God has been, the blessings that we receive as we gather later in a time of prayer. Is that not a time of praise and worship to God? It most certainly is. And I think this is wonderfully expressed in verse 26 where the poor are eating and they're satisfied. We come to the Lord as those that are poor, but we've been filled by him. <clears throat> Those who seek the Lord will praise him. And the word afflicted here in verse 26 means the humble, the meek, the lowly or poor. And this reminds me a little bit of the Beatitudes where Jesus spoke of the poor in spirit. Those are the ones that will take possession of the kingdom of heaven. The humble shall inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they're the ones that will be satisfied. And this was the promise that we heard about this morning from John 6. Jesus, the bread of life, the one who partakes of him, will never hunger and thirst. In other words, will be fully satisfied. They'll have their fill of Christ by faith, and they respond with that filling by praising God. Filled with Christ, they praise God. They partake of Christ. They respond in worship. Those who seek God through faith in Christ enter into eternal life. And then in verse 27, the company of worshipers who have eaten this life-giving food have grown now. There's more of them. It extends over the face of the earth, it says. So no longer is merely the nation of Israel in view, but from all the nations there will be worship and praise because, again, of suffering Messiah and what he did on Calvary, and that he opened the tomb, and he emerged triumphant and successful. Now all the nations are being touched by this. And the reason for the exaltation is that the Lord Jesus is the true king, and he alone rules over all the nations. That's a picture of the sovereignty of Christ. And we can picture Christ emerging from the tomb and then ascending to his father where he rules to this day. And from a suffering victim we see, then he becomes this reigning Ruler, Jesus is the reason that we have eternal life. We've eaten the spiritual food that he has provided and we're satisfied. And we observe in verse 29 that God does not discriminate with those he chooses to feed at his feast. The prosperous as well as the lowly. We would say the rich as well as the poor. The male and female. Slave, free, Jew, Gentile. Right out of the New Testament fulfillment as the Apostle Paul speaks, even the dying soul, notice that in verse uh, 29. And there I picture the thief that died with Christ. In his dying moments, in his breath, he cried out for the Lord, and he too was fed with the gospel. 
It just lets us know that God does not discriminate with those that he pours out his redeeming grace on. All who partake of him are going to be satisfied. And those satisfied hearts, it says, will live forever. Their hearts will live forever. And then we come to our final section. Verse 30 to verse 31. This is where the future generations are in view. Posterity, remember, means that future view. We're told of the Lord to the coming generation. And I think this is where you and I are in view. We think of the gospel first going to the Jew and the Gentile, to Christ's brethren, the disciples, the 500 that witnessed him. It then expanded Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond to the ends of the earth. We see the early church preaching the gospel, Jew and Gentile. And then there is the future generations. You and I are part of this picture. The word of the gospel continues to be sounded forth from Pentecost until Christ returns. And what Christ has done, even what God has done through Christ, is going to be told to the coming generations. Verse 33 tells us there will be those yet to be born who will seek God and who will come to him. They will declare his righteousness. But it's going to be his doing. God will perform this work in bringing them to redemption in his son. Verse 31 We observe that this verse opens with, they will come and will declare righteousness. This stands alongside the words of Jesus from our study this morning. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Spurgeon again says it so well. Sovereign grace shall bring out from among the men the blood-bought ones. Nothing shall thwart the divine purpose The chosen shall come to life, to faith, to pardon, to heaven. In this, the dying Savior finds a sacred satisfaction. These ones will preach the righteousness of God found in Christ alone. And again, it's my view, this is where you and I fit into this dispensation. This is the church today. We're the posterity of those earlier worshipers who are filled with the praises of God by God. From the cross until he returns, believers stand in awe of him, glorify him, praise him, and declare his righteousness. Now, in bringing this psalm to a close, with the second half in mind, I would like to again just highlight a few practical observations that hopefully we can apply to our walk of faith. And in your note sheet, you'll see there's just three of them again that I've put down. But Jesus here made a public display in this home. To bring an end to our sin, we should be equally public about our worship of him. And this is the context that we see here. Jesus made a public display to bring an end to our sin. We should be equally public about our worship of him. And we see that public worship is being exhorted upon these believers, the growing, expanding gospel reach as souls are coming to faith, stand in awe of Him, praise Him, worship Him, speak of His glories. One scholar wrote, public mercies demand public acknowledgments. Public mercies demand public acknowledgments. Christ publicly, by God's mercy, was crucified for us. He publicly came out of the tomb and demonstrated his victory over the cross. The gospel was publicly preached, and you and I have received that. We need to publicly acknowledge him. I have to say I have a history of being 
more on the shy and the reclusive side. And it is certain that the Spirit of God has had to deal with me in that kind of (laughs) withdrawal or that kind of hermit-like posture. But I can still be a little bit prone to be silent in a group when it comes to speaking. And I know that the grace of God has worked with me on this, but here we show a picture that I think has allowed us a, a perfect venue in giving open and public worship to a God that we should be in awe of. And that venue is the church. Here we are gathered together. We have opportunity to pray together. We join our voices together in singing. Sometimes we stand up and we give testimony of the praises of God, when we see God working in wonderful ways through the Spirit that has been given to us. This is a matter for public praise. And I know that each of us can struggle just a little bit to stand up or to speak openly with our voices. But how can we be silent about these things? And we shall be brothers and sisters to each other for all of eternity, children to God in the future kingdom. And in the glory of heaven, we will forever be praising God and telling of his righteousness. It is best that we not wait till then to do it. So that's my exhortation for us this evening. Secondly, it is good to remember that Jesus was triumphant at Calvary, and he continues to be so. Men thought they had put an end to Jesus when they nailed him to a cross and they buried him, yet he rose again. And he's continued to grow his family since that time. Jesus is anything but silent. He is anything but subdued. And not only that, the resurrected Christ is now the enthroned Christ. The kingdom is his. And he rules over the nations as our psalm proclaims. And this must must give us a sense of security and confidence despite the wickedness of the nations and the rulers, the uncertainty and unpredictability of our times. William Plummer writes in his commentary, he, Christ, has never resigned his authority over any people. I think it is sad that many of us who belong to the Lord are grateful for our eternal security in heaven, but we often live in fear on earth. Don't we praise God for the security of knowing we are heaven bound and we praise him for that and yet sometimes do we not live in fear and anxiety upon this earth? Christ is still enthroned. He is still ruling today. Just as he was triumphant over the grave, he reigns triumphantly today. And this is where Jesus is not ashamed, where he said, I'm not ashamed to call you my brethren. In Hebrews 2 and verse 13, he follows up by saying, I will put my trust in him. Third, the humble soul that seeks Christ will be satisfied. The humble soul that seeks Christ will will be satisfied. This we saw also in our hymn tonight, in our psalm. We learned this also from our study this morning in John 6, the bread of life. Satisfaction in the Christian life should be our hallmark. When people look at us, they should see satisfied, contented people, satisfied for what Christ has done for us. Yet too many Christians live their lives in discontent. Why is it? that? What's the source of that? Well, as we saw in the hymn tonight, pride and self-seeking desires will always be in conflict with satisfaction in the cross. And if we find ourselves discontent, we can be sure that pride 
and seeking selfish desires are present in there somewhere. The satisfying alternative is to seek Christ in his pleasure. We strive, we ought to strive for that humility of soul where we find our full contentment and satisfaction in Christ. It's when pride takes over that we become discontent because we think in our hearts, oh, I deserve more, I don't deserve this, I should have that, and all of a sudden we're not happy any longer. Our satisfaction should be in Christ. And I know that I struggle with this, probably many of you do too. We can find our satisfaction in Christ. And this is the beauty of Psalm 22. Father, teach us to see these things. Teach us to love these things. Teach us to live these things. Cause in us to be people that will learn to be worshipers and praisers of God because of the glory of the cross and the triumph of the empty tomb. In Christ we pray, amen. Thank <laughs> you.